Red Hat mission statement is to be a catalyst in communities of customers and partners and developers creating better software the open source way. When you are acting, when you're trying to execute on a mission, you have to first observe what you're doing, then you orient yourself to your environment, then you decide, and then you act. And when I look at the IT industry today, what I see is every challenge that's being presented is a difficulty in executing one of those steps. I like to think that people enjoy being the hero of their own story. And if you don't give people a story about the work that they do, they will create a story for themselves. So it's important to me that people understand overall world in which they are working, um, the influence that their work has. I try to tell them a story about the work that they're doing, and it's a story that they can be a hero in. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Gunnar Hellickson, who is the Vice President and General Manager Linux at Red Hat. A very warm welcome, Gunnar. Thank you. It's great to be here. Gunnar, you studied theater and computer science at the Drew University in New Jersey. You live in Texas and you've been with Red Hat since 2006. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background? Who are you? And how did you end up at Red Hat? And, and what's your function today? We'll see if I can do this quickly. Um, so I started with, uh, I did start by studying theater and computer science because I've always had a passion for theater and performance, and I've also always been interested in computers, even when I was a little boy. And so mm -hmm. I figured I would eventually figure out a way to make those two things work together. And so I went to uni went to a bunch of school for both. And uh, unfortunately, I ran out of money, and <laughs> I couldn't go to school anymore. <laughs> and so I had to go join. The, uh, I had to go join the industry, and the best way to join the industry was, at the time, we were in the middle of the dot-com boom, the internet craze, mm -hmm. and so, in the late 90s, and, uh, and so, uh, ran through several startups, and uh, eventually, in 2006, a friend of mine who was working for Red Hat at the time said, I think you'd be interested in working for Red Hat. You should, you should come and check it out. And uh, so, uh, I entered uh, what amounted to my first sales job, um, and that was with the uh, the public sector, the U.S. government group in, uh, in, uh, in Red Hat. And so I moved to Washington, D.C. I didn't know anything about anything. I just knew that I enjoyed Linux and I enjoyed computers. And um, after about 10 years of doing that, I ended my career in public sector as what amounts to the CTO of the uh, North American public sector group. So covering federal, okay. state, local uh, customers. And then um, uh, one day I got a phone call from one of the executives on the research and development side of the house, what we call products and technologies. And mm -hmm. uh, they said, uh, uh, they said what I think they meant is that they were tired of me complaining about the roadmap. And they said, if you think you're so smart, why don't you come over here and do it yourself? I think is what they meant to say. So um, that's how I got the job for, uh, for running product management uh, for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And uh, just a few years later, uh, I'm now enjoying uh, this role as a general manager. Um, it's been a really exciting ride. Let's talk a little bit more about Red Hat. And, and let's try, I mean, Red Hat is a, has become a very important part of IBM nowadays. So how would you mm -hmm. describe Red Hat in, in a couple of sentences? And what is it that Red Hat does really, really well? Yeah, so I, I think the, uh, if you were to ask the, the CEO, he's, he's fond of saying that uh, Red Hat is, the, is an enterprise software company with an open source development model, right? Yeah. Um, which is, uh, I think that's accurate, uh, but what I like more is our mission statement, uh, which is to be a catalyst in communities of customers and partners and developers creating better software the open source way. Uh, mm -hmm. And so since its inception, um, and certainly when I joined in 2006, Red Hat has had open source and open source innovation kind of core to its culture, and we really do consider ourselves catalysts of all the customers that we work with, all the partners that we work with, bringing them together and creating software that companies can use for mission critical uh, mission critical work. Yeah, and you're responsible for, for let's say, the product management of the Linux uh, product set, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, there, there's an entire portfolio of Linux offerings for servers, for workstations, um, and so I'm responsible for the product management, marketing, operations for, uh, for that, that whole practice, yeah. Okay, now I can imagine that in your job you talk to a lot of uh, businesses, different businesses, a lot of CIOs, CTOs. So maybe we can start our conversation from there. So um, if you look at the industry today, what are the main business challenges that companies are faced with according uh, 
And well, well in, in your view. Yeah, yeah. I think um, obviously security uh, security is a big challenge. Um, mm -hmm. Managing uh, agility, so the the rise in power of the lines of business and balancing balancing that against the interests of the traditional IT organizations. That's a that is that's certainly a big challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the way I think about the, these challenges is uh, uh, is the OODA loop. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. The uh, this is this was a framework that was developed by a by a, a gentleman in the Air Force, a colonel in the Air Force named John Boyd, and uh -huh. he was trying to describe how to design an airplane. I think it applies also to to business problems. And so what he says is, when you are acting, when you're trying to execute on a mission, you have to first observe what you're doing, then you orient yourself to your environment, then you decide, and then you act. And uh, when I look at the IT industry today, what I see is. Every challenge that's being presented is uh, a difficulty in executing one of those steps, um, mm -hmm. either a difficulty in collecting data and, and, and observing what their customers need, what the market needs. Um, it's in orienting yourself, figuring out what the, all this data means uh, in, in context of the market, um, difficulty in making decisions, um, and so needing more decision-making tools uh, available, and then, and then finally acting and you know, being, able to, being able to execute on the things that you need. And what Colonel Boyd teaches us in the pseudo loop is the quicker that you go through that loop, the more effective you are. And so mm -hmm. it's not just a matter of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting once. It's going through that as many times as possible. And to the yeah. extent that you can do that quicker than your competition, you're going to be successful. And so that's the that's the framework I use when I think about uh, when I think about the challenges that businesses are facing today. So agility, making sure that companies can react uh, very quickly to changing market yeah. uh, circumstances, customer demands, and so on, is is, is really key. And how do you see that people or companies are translating that in their, into their IT strategy? So how do yeah. uh, companies need to define their strategies to provide that agility to the, to the organizations? Yeah, well, I think the, as you know, the IT industry is, uh, what is available on the market now is uh, so much more complex and the choices are changing every day. And so uh, as we're trying to work our way through these OODA loops, it becomes really important to decide uh, where to standardize and where to innovate. And uh, me speaking as the Linux person, right, I, I, I'm responsible for the operation of a platform. I think about things in terms of where you decide to make a platform choice. And mm -hmm. where you decide to standardize your organization tells you what is going to be commoditized, what is going to be, uh, where you're going to be driving efficiency. Um, and uh, whatever that is, is going to be underneath your platform choices. And then what's on top of your platform is where you're going to create differentiating value or where you're going to innovate. Um, and so uh, making that decision of where you're going to innovate and provide differentiating value uh, versus what you're going to drive costs out of, what you're going to standardize, what you're going to commoditize, making those choices is kind of central to the, that is the big question that most IT organizations yeah. have to answer. And often, it's, there's more than one answer. You have to choose several different platforms depending on the context and, and your history. Yeah. Right? So, so there's this tension between standardization and innovation. And, and in mm -hmm. our conversation of today, I would like us to focus a little bit on the future of ERP and, uh, mm -hmm. and how the future of ERP is open. And so ERP is all about standardizing, optimizing, efficiency, and so on and so on. So, so, but ERP is also evolving. I mean, all the different ERPs, SAP, they're coming out with new versions and so on and so on. So how do you see the new demands for ERP in companies today? Yeah, I think, well, there's the, as you mentioned earlier, there's a tension between uh, the standardization, which is really what ERPs are about, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. being able to standardize and make sure that everything is kind yeah. of acting in a uniform way. Um, I think that it may be in tension with innovation, but I actually think that they're complementary because uh, you cannot innovate unless you have a stable platform on which you're operating, right? Mm -hmm. And ERP is being the central nervous system of a company, right? The, the ERP being the place where um, all the data resides. Um, it is important to have a safe, reliable, stable ERP system because that is the, that is the rich earth <laughs> that you are going to be able to innovate with, right? Um, yeah. And so uh, it becomes important, though, to make sure that you, do, that you have a... Uh, an operations team, make sure that you have an architecture um, in which the ERP and the innovation are happening using the same tools, using some of the same practices that there is a, uh, uh, that people can move their skills and talents and, and applications 
uh, back and forth from the kind of world of innovation and the third party and, and the third party applications and back onto the ERP. Um, mm -hmm. And so to the extent that they can share platforms, to the extent that they that these things can share tools, um, it makes it easier to take advantage of the relative merits of your innovative third party or in-house developed applications and the uh, and the very reliable and rich data sets that are uh, that are inside the ERP. Okay, and how do you see companies using SAP benefiting from, from, from open technology because, I mean, Red Hat, mm. you're, you're all about open. So how does that come together, the ERP, the SAP, yeah. and, and the open? Let, ex, explain yeah. that to me. Well, I, th I think about it in terms of, of maximizing options, right? Maximizing mm -hmm. choice. Um, and so when you, uh, again, going back, to my, going back to my idea about standardization, um, if you have standardized on, for example, a Linux, for example, mm -hmm. a Red Hat Enterprise Linux, if you have standardized on, on this one platform um, across both of these things, the uh, any investments that you make in building up your skills, talent on your Red Hat Enterprise Linux practice, um, mm -hmm. that benefits to all sides of the house. Um, and so the um, as uh, these as traditional ERP deployments are now moving into the world of you know HANA and moving into public cloud deployments and things like this, um, it makes sense that they would take advantage of more open tools that allow for more connections, richer ecosystems than what they may have enjoyed in the past. All these SAP uh, companies, let's call them, all the companies mm. that use SAP as their standard ERP, they are moving uh, to the cloud, they're moving to HANA, and, and so that also means that they need to move to, uh, uh, to, uh, to a, a Linux operating system. So yes. how is that move, how, do companies can, uh, how do, can companies use that move to also modernize? How, do, how can they use that to, do, yeah. to, to support a digital transformation? Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it is part and parcel of a, of a digital transformation, right? It is a, I think it's an essential component to it um, mm -hmm. because the same skills and practices and, and operational discipline required uh, to move to something like HANA or move to something, move into the, into the public cloud, these are mm -hmm. digital transformation skills and talents and processes that, that you need to have in place. Um, and so uh, it may feel because we, uh, because ERPs are traditionally um, a special place inside the IT organization. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to think about them as something different or something set aside, uh, but this is a tremendous opportunity for the ERP to now become much better integrated and better connected to the overall digital transformation that a lot of IT organizations are, are trying yep. to come to. And so, uh, again, by sharing tools, processes, practices, standards, um, this, is a, uh, this is a great way to get much more out of the existing ERP installations yep. that people have. So, Gunnar, could you illustrate how the changing the platform, the ERP platform to open technology is really an opportunity for digital transformation. I mean, in, in your work with your clients, um, maybe you can illustrate that with, a, with an example, right? So uh, if I think about the move to public cloud, for example, mm -hmm. as, as one aspect of this, of this transformation, um, what, I've, what I've seen many customers enjoy is when they move to public cloud, what they're doing is taking, fundamentally, they're taking a capital expenditure and turning it into an operating expenditure, right? Mm -hmm. And that gives them a tremendous amount of flexibility and gives them an opportunity for much more efficiency um, so that uh, rather than having to maintain massive databases on-premise, which is an enormous requ requirement on budgets, enormous requirement of staff and talent, uh, now that work, having been moved into the public cloud, having been moved into an operating expense, um, makes it easier for them to take that same tremendous skill and talent and apply it to transformational projects. Um, and so it's a, it allows for a shift in focus, um, yeah. which is very important, right? Because uh, you can't always hire your way into a digital transformation. You often have to do digital transformation with, with what you have available, right? Okay. And, and how and when should companies do do this migration to, to hybrid cloud because it's not only public cloud, it's, 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 it's hybrid nowadays, right? Yeah, it's, it is rare that I run into a company that decides we're going to have a hybrid cloud. Uh, what happens is they have an, uh, an on-premise deployment and they say, mm -hmm. oh, I, I think I need to enjoy some public cloud benefits. And so they move yeah. part of their work into the public cloud. And before they know it, now they're suddenly running on a hybrid cloud operation. It's often a, a consequence of choices that they make rather than part of a, an affirmative strategy. A lot of people mm -hmm. kind of move into it, I would say, by accident. Um, and... Uh, and I think this is one of the this is one of the most inter interesting things about IT right now is that these choices that people are making, um, if they 
in the rear view mirror, you go back and look at what you have done and you say, oh yeah, well, I guess I had a hybrid cloud strategy, right? The surprise. Um, and yep. now I have, some of my work is in AWS, some of my work is in Azure, and some of my work is on-premise. And now I need a way of managing all that work together. And now I need a single view of how all of my applications are running. Now I need a single way of managing my costs, so on and so on and so on. And now suddenly yep. I find, oh, now, I, now I'm in a hybrid cloud uh, environment, right? Okay, and is that where Red Hat comes in as well? Is that where you guys provide the necessary platforms to do that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, we provide uh, platforms on which people can standardize to make the to make e all these transitions easier. So that if you're running an application on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, for example, on premise, um, and you want to take that application and move it to a cloud, uh, the good news is that Red Hat Enterprise Linux is also available on that cloud, and it runs exactly the same as it does on premise. And uh, likewise with uh, OpenShift, if you're running our OpenShift application container management platform, running that on premise. Uh, it will run the same way uh, when you move to the public cloud. So using these platforms, again, using these points of standardization in order to ease the transition of applications from one platform or one infrastructure over to another, that's kind of really where we excel. Um, yeah. And then we have the, the Ansible automation platform, um, which is uh, uh, the glue that can bring all these things together and automate uh, internal processes across all of these different platforms. So gonna, I know that Red Hat and SAP, you guys have a great partnership together, strategic partnerships. Uh, why is that important to the market? Why is that important to, uh, to our organizations? Yeah, so uh, organizations that have invested in SAP uh, for their ERP and, and application solutions, uh, they are interested in the same things that Red Hat is interested in. Um, they are interested in reliability. They are interested in running mission-critical workloads. They are interested in security. Uh, these are all things that uh, Red Hat has built its reputation on. Um, mm -hmm. We are in every company in the Fortune 500. Uh, we are in every airline. We are in every bank, um, majority of stock exchanges. So we understand how to manage the same workloads that SAP customers want to run. Um, mm -hmm. The second is uh, that all the innovation that we've been talking about. Uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, in particular, makes it really easy for an SAP customer to access this uh, this wonderland of innovation available in the on the Linux platform. Um, that is that is in fact an important part of, of what we do. And then third is the rich ecosystem that we maintain together with SAP and all of our partners, um, application partners, ISVs, delivery partners, infrastructure partners, um, so that when a customer is looking at uh, a Linux choice on SAP, um, they will find uh, they will find themselves very comfortable working with Red Hat uh, because yeah. I really do feel that we speak their language. So let's look at this from a more philosophical uh, point of view. We've been in the industry quite some uh, some time, and in IT you have the pendulum uh, where uh, all of a sudden standardization and, and is very important. Mm -hmm. Everything and security is of course always important, and 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 then you have it swings more to now we're in in innovation and, and companies uh, have thousands of different uh, SaaS tools and it's so easy to employ them. And so we're, we're back into, an, uh, an, into a time where companies have so many different tools. And we come from a, from, from a time where there was a real focus on, on standardization. So back to that tension that we talked about. So, so how do you look at that? Where do you see your customers going? So how can you make, how can you combine using these funky, important new tools and at the same time make sure that you, that you keep standardized and that you keep your cost under control? Uh, it's an enormous question and I'm not sure I have mm -hmm. a perfect answer, but I think the, the way that I think about it is, again, making sure that a company, as you're building an IT strategy, making sure that you're intentional about what you are going to innovate on. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of companies, some companies, um, make the choice of creating no choice uh, that is perfect standardization, right? We're going to have rules around all the different applications that everyone is allowed to use, and here's your list of 30 applications that that you're allowed to that you're allowed to operate, and that 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 is one side of the pendulum that closes you off to to innovation, right? And I think a mm -hmm. lot of people understand the dangers of that, even though you may get some efficiency from it. On the other end, you have companies who say, oh, there are no rules. Everybody can use whatever tool they like. And those companies very quickly find themselves buried in complexity and integration problems and, and so on and so forth. And so 
Um, overall, I think the, the right approach is to be intentional about what is really going to give your company or your mission an unfair advantage. And mm -hmm. that's where you want to focus your innovation. That's where you want to maximize the amount of choice you have available. And yep. everything else should be standardized and commoditized and, and metered, uh, right? Yep. Um, so, that, uh, so that you can use the dividends from increased efficiency in order to pay for that innovation on top. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Linux. I mean, that must be, that, that's <laughs> very close to your heart, you can imagine. So, right. I mean, from, for an outstander, um, so yeah. how is that, how does that work? How is, is there the development of, uh, the further ongoing development of, of Linux, how does that work? Because I would think it should be finished by now, Linux. I mean, you've, you've been working <laughs> on it for so many years. It's a standard yeah. operating system. So. Where's the new, where's the innovation on, on, on that level? Yeah, so the, um, that's funny. I, I like the idea of Linux being finished. It's, uh, <laughs> we, can, we can release the next version of RHEL and say, oh, we're done. Okay, congratulations, everyone. We did it. Yeah, right. Um, no, of course, Linux is an, is an ongoing project, and it's, uh, it's been going for, for decades now. Um, mm -hmm. What is special about it is that it is, a, it is in itself one project, um, but it is supported by tens of thousands of support of other projects. So mm -hmm. it's not just the Linux kernel itself, which is the core of the operating system, uh, but it is window managers and device mappers and file system managers and tens of thousands of these things, which all somehow magically work together uh, in order to in order to create something that is that is ultimately ultimately useful. Yeah. Um, that creates a lot of chaos, and it means that things are changing every day. You can go to the Linux kernel every day, and you'll find something new that's been contributed by a user or by a company. Um, and uh, over these decades, we've honed tools that allow us to, uh, uh, and tools and practices that allow us to take all of this disparate intention and all of this innovation and to create something that you can actually, that a, a mere mortal can install on a computer and, and have something uh, and have something working. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, at, so at Red Hat, the, what, what we've done is uh, we take we that's where we start is with mm -hmm. these tens of thousands of individual projects, and we pull them all together into a working operating system, and we call it Fedora. And Fedora is free; anyone can download it, anyone can work on it, and we have thousands of people who are improving the Fedora operating system. This is where we do our experiments. This is where we take risks. Um, and so, mm -hmm. if you want to see the latest and greatest uh, of what's going on in File system optimization, or network engineering, or or what have you, you can you can play with that in in Fedora. Um, then we take that innovation in Fedora, and we put it into another operating system, which we call CentOS Stream. This is the next version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and so you can go every day to CentOS Stream and see RHEL being developed. So uh, we're about to release Red Hat Enterprise Linux nine. You can watch Red Hat Enterprise Linux ten being built now in uh, in the CentOS Stream project. Mm -hmm. um, so the vast majority of our development is uh, done in public. Everybody can see what we're doing. We don't have any secrets. Um, and this is where the CentOS Stream is something that is much more stable than what you would get from Fedora or from, mm -hmm. the, open, open, uh, from the larger open source community. And using that stable base, this is where we work together with our customers and our partners to make sure that the next version of RHEL is going to do all of the things that they, that they need to do. Um, and yeah. so, uh, it's an iterative process, and each step of the process takes risk out, uh, improves security, uh, makes things work better together, until ultimately you have a robust operating system that is safe, secure, and can be used on mission-critical workloads. Yeah. So your team and, and, and your role, mm. could you describe that? What, what, what is your role in Red Hat? Uh, because it's, it sounds a little bit like herding cats. I mean, you have so many different stakeholders yeah. and developers and clients, yeah. and you have your engineers yeah. and so on. So, so how would you describe your role and, and, and your, your, your team's role? So uh, the role of the, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux business unit uh, ultimately is to provide direction on the product, uh, that is, make mm -hmm. sure that the customers and the partners are, are happy, um, and balance that off against the engineering resources that we have available, um, which also means... Uh, uh, traditionally, when you're building a product, you think about, uh, oh, I'm going to build a strategy, and I'm going to build a roadmap, and then I'm going to take my engineering resources and apply those to the roadmap. And we do all of these things. It's a, it's a regular software company in that sense. Um, unfortunately, we also have tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of other people also designing the product because they are all working in the open source community. And yeah. so the process actually also works 
in forward and reverse uh, is how I like to think about it. So we're planning top down and we're also watching what's happening in the in these open source communities, paying attention to what's interesting, what's innovative, what's new, and pull and bringing that up into the product. And Red Hat Enterprise Linux is where that top down and that bottom up planning meet. Um, yeah. So it makes for a very interesting experience if you're a product manager. It makes for a uh, very difficult but very rewarding experience if you're um, in product marketing uh, because you're often surprised by features that show up in the operating system. Like, oh, we weren't planning on this, but I guess we can talk about it now. Uh, so it makes for a, uh, a very dynamic and very exciting uh, organization to work for. So you talk about 10,000 different products or 10,000 different developers around the globe working uh, working on Linux. But I, I can imagine that the, the, the engineering team at Red Hat and, and the product management that you do I mean, you set direction and, and the engineers of Red Hat. So how important is the contribution of, 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 uh, of Red Hat teams to Linux today? So this is, this is how we drive our own roadmap. Uh, it would be mm -hmm. one thing for us in, in the business unit to be setting a product roadmap. And uh, unfortunately, most of the folks that work on the software that we ship do not work for Red Hat. Uh, and so they don't particularly care what our plans are. Um, the way that we make sure that we can do all the things that we want to do is Red Hat goes out of its way to hire world-class talent that are leaders in these open source projects. And so there are certain strategic projects like the Linux kernel that we are very interested in the future of that we do want to inject our intention into. And so what we do is we we hire the, the maintainers, the leaders of those, uh, uh, of those projects. Um, and in that way, we can... Uh, it allows us to, I think, strike a good balance between uh, the innovation that is happening in the broader open source communities and also be, being able to advocate on behalf of our partners and customers in those communities. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about uh, how, how you, where do you spend your time? I mean, I mean, is, is it with your, with your clients, with your engineers? Is, is it with the, with the, with the community? Where does yeah. most of your time go into? Uh, I can never spend enough time with our customers and partners. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that is, that is the. I come from a sales background. I love talking to customers. Right? It is the most rewarding part of the part of the job for me, um, mm -hmm. and so I always enjoy it when it happens. Um, I think uh, there is a. We do spend a lot of time making sure that every. It's a big project. It's a big business. It's a very complicated. There are lots of. There are thousands of partners to manage. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of users to, to to help, and so uh, I think the most important part of at least my job is to uh, provide everybody the direction and clarity of of the purpose. Um, Red Hat, with its open source roots, is a very dynamic company, uh, very meritocratic, very flat organization. And so mm -hmm. it becomes very important that everyone understand what the plan is um, so that each person can act autonomously um, yeah. in, the, uh, in, the, in their day-to-day -day work. And so I, I spend a lot of time um, building stories uh, and uh, helping people understand how their work can serve the overall company, uh, overall company strategy. Okay. And how are, how are your teams organized and, 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 and what's mm. your, are you talking a little bit about the culture of, 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 of Red Hat um, and, and, and what's your, uh, how do you organize your team and how do you manage your team? So uh, the, org, the org chart for the business unit looks very much like any, uh, like any business unit uh, for an enterprise software company would. We have a product management team. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a product marketing team, we have an operations team, we have an ecosystem and partner team. Um, and so those are my, I think about that as my dashboard, right? I've got, mm -hmm. I've got a dashboard of knobs and dials that I can turn and, oh, I need to pay more attention to the product planning or, oh, I need to pay more attention to the marketing. Um, and uh, so it's conventional in this sense. Um, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are surprised by how few people there are in the business unit. Um, we actually don't have that many uh, product managers uh, compared to kind of industry standards. And one of the reasons for that is that we have such a strong and uh, I will say opinionated engineering team. Um, and so we actually rely heavily on our engineering leadership uh, to fulfill a lot of the functions that may in other companies actually traditionally fall to, to product management. Um, it allows us to be very lean, um, but it also means that uh, to the extent we can tell clear stories, set clear priorities, set clear direction, um, it allows us to have a much greater impact uh, than, mm -hmm. uh, than we would otherwise. Yeah. Okay. And how easy is it for you to, to attract top talent? Because, I mean, you're in hardcore tech, right? So, so does that make it easy or is, does it, is it more difficult to attract? attract the right profiles for your teams? 
it, it is, uh, Red Hat is blessed by having an excellent reputation, uh, both as a place to work and having mm -hmm. a mission that people are really passionate about. Uh, and so um, it is, uh, it is not hard to get people interested in working for Red Hat, especially if they are already working in Linux um, or one of the uh, or one of the related spaces. Um, so that's we're lucky in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I think also having the Red Hat culture is uh, that we talked about earlier uh, is something that is also very very attractive. Um, we have a culture uh, again. You can call it a meritocracy. Um, it is extremely transparent. Um, it is. Uh, it rewards uh, people who are to, who take the initiative and are self-starters, um, and it can make for what appears to be a very chaotic work environment from the outside, maybe. Um, but internally, uh, what that chaos it, internally is a very elaborate uh, system for decision making and building consensus. Um, and so, what mm -hmm. I like to say is uh, is that it feels that. Um, it takes a lot of energy to get Red Hat to make a decision, but once we make decisions, it is extremely durable, and the entire country and the entire company is aligned around it. Um, and okay. so, uh, it does make for a very fun and vibrant place to work because we are always arguing about something. Could you maybe give a, a, an example how a meritocracy really works in in practice? Because I mean, we our this our CIOnet uh, companies and organizations that we work with. I mean, there are banks and, and public government, uh, public uh, organizations, which are maybe not uh, organized and don't have uh, always the same culture. So, can you illustrate that a little bit? What what does that mean in practice? Yeah, um, and so the uh, uh, so I'll tell you a story, um, uh, and this is public. This was uh, this was written about in uh, Jim Whitehurst, our former CEO, put this in his book. So I know I can tell the story. <laughs> uh, the uh, and the story is uh, back in two thousand six. Um, our, our rival Oracle had uh, had announced that they were going to create uh, the Oracle Unbreakable Linux. They were going to compete with us using our own software, right? Our, we're an open source company. They took our our software. They're going to go compete with us using our own tools. Um, and this was happening uh, at the at an Oracle uh, convention at the big Oracle user uh, uh, user conference in uh, in no. San Francisco. And Red Hat people were there in a booth, and they made the announcement, and they sent an email out to uh, MemoList, which is a big institution at Red Hat. MemoList is the one mailing list that everybody in the company is subscribed to. Um, when it was first started, it was used just to send organizational announcements, but it quickly became a enormous discussion group on any given topic about anything that is going on in the market, in the company. And so this is the fastest way to get access to the collective thinking of the whole of Red Hat is to send an email to MemoList. So these people at this at this conference that night sent an email to MemoList saying, they just announced this product, how do we respond? We're gonna be in the booth tomorrow morning, what do we do? And uh, thousands of people started sifting through ideas, arguing, cajoling, persuading, and uh, by the next morning, uh, we had figured out how to get uh, t-shirts printed uh, that read unfakeable Linux across the front, <laughs> and those t-shirts were available in the booth the next morning. Um, and uh, that is a I love that I love that story because uh, that is very much captures the the spirit of Red Hat. Um, mm -hmm. We were able to do something quite remarkable in a very short amount of time, uh, but not before several thousand of us uh, argued about it. So we talked a little bit about the management, your management style, the general management style within Red Hat. Let's also talk a, a little bit about leadership and how you lead your teams. Mm -hmm. You lead product market marketing people, product management people operations people, partner people, and so on. So if I would go and, and, and ask these people about your leadership style, what do you think that they would say to me? So what do you think people um, say about your leadership style when you're not around? Boy, I hope I'm right, because this is being recorded. <laughs> so <laughs> I, think, I think what they would say is, uh, f what I hope they would say is first that I am kind uh, above mm -hmm. all. Um, I think it is very important to me that the workplace, this is where we spend most of our waking hours, and it is important to me that everyone uh, be kind both to themselves and to each other. Um, I think that's hopefully that it, hopefully I'm conveying that to my to my organization. Um, mm -hmm. The second is uh, I rely very heavily on uh, frameworks, uh, rubrics that I like to think that people enjoy being the hero of their own story. And if you don't give people a story about the work that they do, they will create a story for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important to me that people understand uh, the overall uh, world in which they are working, 
um, the influence that their work has. I try to tell them a story about the work that they're doing, and it's a story that they can be a hero in. Um, and so I think that means spending a lot of time being clear about priorities, being clear about structure, being clear about um, the, where the work is happening. Um, and uh, I, I spent a lot of I spent a lot of time on that, and hopefully, hopefully, people would mention that. Um, another way of saying that you may hear people say uh, that I enjoy admiring problems. Um, I do enjoy taking problems and turning them around and looking at them from different angles and thinking about them from from every piece. Um, and so I think I'm not proud of this, but I think it also makes me uh, somewhat slow to make decisions um, mm -hmm. because. Uh, uh, well, in my position, when you're presiding over a massive operation uh, like Red Hat Enterprise Linux is, where I'm working on 10 to 15 year horizons, um, I am uh, uh, I am reluctant to make hasty decisions. It's important that, uh, that we be uh, thoughtful and deliberate about everything that we're doing. In your work, Kunev, hmm. what is it that really uh, drives you? Because what you say is your decisions today, they have a very long shelf life, right? They, they, yes. they, <laughs> they influence the future of, of your product for the next 10, 15 years. But besides the, 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 the importance on the longevity of your, of your decisions, what is it that really drives you in your work? When at the end of the, the, the week, on the Friday evening you go home, when are you happy? Tactically speaking, what I really enjoy is a good checklist. I enjoy making lists at the beginning of the mm -hmm. week and then at the end of the week, it just, it doesn't even matter what the list has on it. It could be brush your teeth, launch a new product. It doesn't matter what the list is. As long as I've been able to check those boxes, that, that, that is a motivator for me. Um, but I think uh, sp thinking a little more grandly than that, I think the, the thing that really motivates me is my ability to make the world a better place, both for, mm -hmm. the, for the people that work for me and also for our customers and our partners. Um, one way of thinking about the work is, oh, I have to make a bunch of people happy with these feature requests, or I have to fix this bug, or I have to make sure this security thing gets fixed. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. The way I think about it is that I am presented with opportunities every day to make the world just a little bit better uh, for everyone uh, who I work with. And that, that, at the end of the week, if I can look back and think, yes, every day I made the world a little bit better for everyone who works for me, for our customers, for our partners, that's, that, that is really rewarding for me. I like that. Now, we call these interviews leadership deep dives. So let's dive mm. a little bit deeper and, and let's talk about your personality a little bit more because I think the successful digital leaders have a, uh, have a way, a special way how they think, uh, their, their, their convictions and their personality traits are very, very important. So you shared with us that your, your MBTI is that you're an INFJ. Uh, also called an advocate. And an INFJ is somebody who's uh, more introverted, intuitive, feeling, and they have a judging personality uh, threat. And they tend to approach life with uh, deep thoughtfulness and imagination. And typically people with this uh, personality profile, their inner visions, their personal values, and, and, and a quiet and principled version of humanism is really what guides them in, in all things. So. I'm gonna give you a couple of strengths of people with your personality uh, profile and, and, and please tell me if they resonate with you, if you recognize yourself and maybe give an example of, of, of that. So uh, advocates, INFJs, they typically are very creative, they're insightful, they're principled, they're passionate and, uh, and they're altruistic. How does that translate uh, to you? That resident, that sounds like somebody I would really enjoy. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that, yeah, that, that does resonate with me. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the, especially the quiet and contemplative part of this, I do think about my, myself as a, as a systems thinker. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. just thinking about one consequence, I'm thinking about the second and third and fourth order consequences uh, of, the, of the work that we're doing. And so um, that does require a great deal of, kind of thoughtfulness and, and actually introversion, so I can, I can agree with that. Um, I think especially a principled thinking, um, uh, I, think it is a, it's, I think it is a running joke on my staff that I enjoy a good set of principles um, because rather than telling people what the answer is, I do enjoy giving them a list of rules that we are going to follow and then we can make decisions within the confines of those rules. I find that to be a very effective way of, of leading people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I recognize all of these strengths. This, make, this okay. makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Now let's, let's flip the coin and, and let's look at your development areas. People with your oh, yeah. uh, personality <laughs> profile, 
potential weaknesses, uh, let's call them, is um, that these people can be very sensitive to criticism. Uh, they can sometimes be reluctant to open up enough. They can be, and that's a, uh, a dangerous one, perfectionist. Uh, and mm -hmm. they tend to avoid the ordinary. Uh, and sometimes they're prone to burnout. So what are your challenges and how have you overcome them to be the, uh, the leader that you are today? Yeah, I, I recognize all of these weaknesses because these are all things that I've, that I've, that I've worked on and, and continue, to, and continue mm -hmm. to work on. I think the, uh, the burnout and self-criticism, uh, I think those, def those resonate strongly with me. I think the, um, it, especially when I was younger, uh, it was very easy for me to burn out um, mm -hmm. and have, honestly, unrealistic ex expectations of myself. Um, and so I spend, uh, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to be gentle with myself. I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I, I like to be gentle with my staff and, and, and gentle with the, the, the other folks that I work with. And, and that comes from uh, a need to be gentle with my, with my own self um, because no. my instinct is to be a perfectionist and drive myself uh, to an impossible standard. And uh, I've learned over the years to moderate that somewhat. And, uh, and it's, uh, sometimes you don't have to be perfect, I'm told. And how did you learn that? I mean, did you go and went to a, a Buddhist uh, uh, monk and learn it there, or did you do meditation? Or what were the steps for you to learn yeah. this? So I, I came to meditation regrettably late in my life, but that has helped mm -hmm. um, because okay. meditation does help you put space between a feeling that you have and the need to act. Right? You can mm -hmm. kind of sit in that middle space, and I do find that helpful now. Um, I think uh, I came to this by making several costly mistakes, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I came to this by burning out more than once. Uh, I came to this by, you know, uh, uh, kind of, especially I think in my 20s when I was young and, and wasn't sure exactly what I should expect of myself or other people. Um, I really did drive myself really unnecessarily hard. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the, that taught me a lesson that I, that, that was the first way that I learned that lesson. And I continue to to see that come up in my life as I go through my 30s and my 40s. So let's talk a little, let's go one level deeper and, and let's talk about your values. You uh, shared with mm -hmm. us that you have an, um, an eight-year-old son that you must be yeah. very proud of, of course. And, uh, and of course. so what are, the, what are the core values that you're passing on to, uh, to your son? What is it that the core values that you want to see him grow up with? Uh, I think uh, uh, the first is to, the first and most important maybe is to be kind uh, both to, mm -hmm. uh, to others and to himself, right? Um, and uh, another thing I often tell him is, uh, well, listen, uh, every villain is the hero of their own story, um, which I think is, mm -hmm. a, is a valuable thing for, for, especially for a young child to learn, because it's very easy for them to think about things in strictly in terms of black or white, and there are good things and there are bad things, and that's an important developmental step, but it is important for him to understand that everyone believes that they are doing the right thing. Um, and it's important to to ask why. It's important to uh, to interrogate people's people's motives uh, because that mm -hmm. leads to empathy and, and better understanding. And so, anyway, at eight years old, that's that's what I'm working on with him now is uh, is yeah. guiding him towards curiosity and empathy. Right. Yeah. Okay. And in, in your personal life or in your professional life, Gunnar, uh, do you do you have a mantra, a personal mantra, a saying that helps you if you have to make a, a tough decision? Uh, several. Um, okay. <laughs> so I think uh, one of them, one of them that uh, one that I say to myself almost every day is, and and in fact this is, uh, uh, I have a list of aphorisms that I've that I tyrannize my staff with, and this is one of them is uh, is to uh, is to first uh, be clear, to be kind, and to make space for other folks, um, and that's in order of importance um, because uh, you cannot be kind with someone unless you can first be clear with them. Uh, and that's clear about your intentions, clear about what your purpose is. Uh, then to be kind, in other words, to treat them as, as human beings. They are struggling mm -hmm. in the same way that all of us are. Uh, and then finally to make space and give people room to make their mistakes or have their feelings. Um, so to be clear, to be kind, and to make space. I think that's, that's, a, uh, that's, one, of my, that's one of my mantras. The other one, this is connected to my checklist uh, impulse, is uh, just do the next right thing. Um, Everything, especially in, in, my, in my business life, uh, everything feels like a big problem. It's all long-term, 15-year problems. It's numbers with lots of commas and, and decimal points in them. And uh, it can be overwhelming. And what I have to remind myself is, all I have to do is the next right thing. Um, mm -hmm. And that is all I can do. Um, and so having an incrementalism, I think, is, a, is a, another one of my values. 
Okay. If you look back in, in, in your personal development, in your professional development, were there important figures, were there important mentors in your life or important mm -hmm. people that you look up to and that you learn from? Oh, yes. Uh, so Jim Totten, who had my job uh, uh, several years ago, um, mm -hmm. I worked with, I, he has been a longtime industry veteran. Um, I admire him a great deal. Uh, and he taught me the importance of clarity. Uh, clarity in mm -hmm. thinking and clarity in, in communication. Um, he was always extremely good about uh, having a tough conversation with a customer um, uh, where another executive or where someone else like me uh, would try to soften a difficult message. Um, he would start the meeting and say, all right, first I want to start this meeting. I'm going to tell you no. And I would like to spend this meeting explaining why I've, I'm, I've now told you no. And it's kind of it was kind of a shocking approach at first, but I came to really appreciate the fact that he was clear with the customer, both about his decision and and how he arrived at it. Um, and I think the mm -hmm. customers appreciated that that clarity too. Um, and uh, I think uh, I, w I was thinking about this earlier and who my best mentor was. And honestly, probably the best mentor was my old self, uh, who was very stupid and made some very dumb decisions uh, in his life. Um, <laughs> and uh, and those mistakes uh, definitely taught me uh, taught me a great deal. Now we're coming to an interesting point, of course. So your mistakes, your your failures, and mm -hmm. and, and 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 what we learn from them. So so looking back, we all make our mistakes, and that's how we grow, and that's how we learn. But could yeah. you tell us what was your most brilliant failure that you ever done, and and what did you learn yeah. from it? Well, I think uh, the way that the way that my brain works is. Mm -hmm. uh, all of my ideas are brilliant, and most of them are mistakes. <laughs> and if they were, if they end up being successes, it is very much an accident. <laughs> it's an accident <laughs> of timing. It's an accident of uh, of what resources were available at the time. Um, I think that uh, um, I I tend to think of everything as a potential mistake, um, mm -hmm. and then I'm pleasantly surprised when they become successes. Uh, and so, um, I think the so broadly speaking, that would be my answer. I think um, specifically, probably my my largest mistake um, was uh, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it's maybe it's how I got where I am now. But uh, is I think um, uh, I mentioned earlier that I that I dropped out of school uh, when I ran mm -hmm. out of money, um, and I do have fantasies about uh, about what my life could have been like if I had went out and got a got an advanced degree when I got mm -hmm. a PhD and and so on, um, and. Uh, uh, so I have some regrets about that. Um, well, Steve Jobs didn't uh, finish his studies, and, and many other top leaders, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put myself in that company necessarily, <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I think it's, um, you know, what, what, especially when I'm when I'm uh, mentoring uh, young leaders. I mean, one of the mm -hmm. things that one of the things I try to focus on is or try to communicate to them is that. Um, a lot of them come into a career thinking that they can create a plan for something and have it all work out, right? Oh, if I just get this degree and then I get this kind of a job and then I'm gonna have this kind of a career. Um, no. And what has served me really well is not spending too much time on those kinds of plans at all. And instead, uh, at each point in my life, making a decision that optimized for options. So if no. I choose this path, I have three or four different things I could do after that. Or if I choose this path, I've really only got one choice. If I always chose, when I choose the path that creates the most options in the future, um, I tend to be really well served. Um, and it makes me more available for uh, lucky accidents. Um, and yeah. so if you look at my career, it's actually just a series of lucky accidents. Let's talk a little bit more about your personal life, if, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. So, um, and, and what I would like to know is, what, what are the best things that ever happened to you in your life? And, and of course, it will be your, your family and your son. But besides the family, the wife, the son, and so on, <laughs> what is really the best thing that has ever happened to you? Um, I would say that the, yes, of course, the, the answer is the, the best thing that ever happened to me. I think <laughs> it is corny. The best thing that has ever happened to me is, uh, is every moment I get to spend with my son and watching him grow is, is incredibly rewarding. Um, mm -hmm. The second best thing that ever happened to me, if I go all the way back in my history, is the moment in the very early 80s when my mother brought home the first personal computer and let me touch it. Um, that, was, uh, that was, again, very, very lucky. 
Um, but she uh, surely went out of her way to spark an interest in computers and computing, um, which is uh, is now an, an important and kind of an integral part of my part of my life. So I'm very grateful for her to have created those opportunities for me, especially yeah. in 1980 or 1981. It was unheard of. You know? Okay. And, and you know, what, what do you like to do outside of work? What are your, your personal passions? Yeah, I don't understand the question. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I think... <laughs> um, so uh, I do run. I started running uh, very late in my life. Um, I, uh, in fact, uh, I very deliberately did not run through most of my life. But uh, about five years ago, uh, I started getting into it, and I really enjoy mm -hmm. it. I find it meditative. Um, I find it very rewarding. Um, and, uh, and so I run as, as often as I can. Um, okay. So that's, uh, that's definitely one of my hobbies. Um, and uh, and when, I'm, when I'm not running or taking care of my son or doing my work, uh, I am desperately trying to read uh, because I find that I get older, I, have it, I find it very difficult uh, to get invested in a book. Um, and so it's always, a, it's always a real treat when I can spend some time with a, with spend some time in a book. Okay. Now, in your life, what, what is it that you, that you fear most and what is it that you love most? Oh, the thing I fear most will be that uh, I'm the villain of someone else's story. Um, I always fear, I always try, you know, for someone as, as obsessed as I am with being kind and being gentle mm -hmm. and making space for people, um, the idea that I could quite accidentally become someone's, uh, uh, ruin someone's day or make life difficult for someone or become their nemesis, <laughs> I think, uh, I, uh, I do, that is, that is my greatest fear and it is, it is not rational, but it is very present in my life, yes. And what do you, and what do you love most in your life? Um, I love, uh, I like that I am now at a point in my life where I have, I am able to be grateful for everything that I have uh, and be intentionally grateful uh, about the things that I have. Um, I spent, I spent a lot of time in my life not thinking very much about all the resources that I had available to me, all the options that I had available to me. Um, and now as I'm getting older and I'm getting less hair and it's turning gray, uh, I'm now, I'm now able to be much more reflective and uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and to be grateful for really everything. So Gunnar, thank you so much for your time and for this interview. Um, my last question for the day is, um, um, there's a lot of ambitious, young people, digital, brilliant minds that, that watch our videos and, uh, and that, are, that would like to follow in your footsteps. I also want to become uh, a, a, a top leader inside a tech company. So looking back to your younger self, maybe what advice is that you would give to young people so that they can also build a career like yours? First, I would say, uh, be curious. Be curious mm -hmm. about everything. Ask why all the time. The second thing I would say is uh, to be gentle with yourself. Do not put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, you've only got this one life. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's important to be kind to yourself and other people. And the third thing I would say is uh, make sure that you are maximizing your options. Um, uh, uh, don't uh, don't get overly uptight in your thinking or your decision making. Is you want to maximize your flexibility and your options for the future. And on that note, Gunnar, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure to getting to know you, and uh, so I wish you a lot of success. And uh, well, we see each other on the next conference anyway, right? Oh, I hope to. I hope to. That would be great. Thank you very much. This is great.